Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Guys, today I'm really excited to have a good friend here, also someone who's a Latin American uh, and who's uh, the godfather of the European and, and possibly uh, Shortage, uh, the godfather of the ecosystem here in Shortage, because he was one of the leading voices behind Google Campus. Uh, welcome, Easy Vidra. Thank you, Carlos. It's great to be here. Um, as you know, we like to start off with the early days, the early days of Easy Vidra's life. He studied in Israel, uh, where he did an entrepreneurship program, and he, he started a company there. And I think one of the interesting things about your life, Easy, from you know, pre-Google days, where you know where we met, um, was that you had such a huge amount of entrepreneurial opportunities and experiences, ranging from Shopping.com to Ask.com to AOL. And maybe you can kind of give us an overview of, of some of the highlights of that period and some of the challenges and sort of highs and lows. Sure. So I was born in Argentina and I moved to Israel when I was eight years old with my family. So um, being a child of immigrants, I think, uh, does something to you in the sense that uh, you want to stand out. You want to like you're competing with the locals and you want to be at least as good as them, if, if not better, if you could. Um, but my family, uh, they're all doctors. So, you know, being an entrepreneur wasn't necessarily um, in my genes. Um, Israel has a very unique ecosystem where people, um, the, the distance between you and someone that's in a startup is usually usually one person. Like, you know people that are in startups, everyone wants to start one. Um, the TV shows are about entrepreneurship. It's sort of like the role model to be. So I guess it was always itching uh, to do something about it. And the first opportunity presented itself when I was in college, um, where I'd been accepted to what's called the Zell Entrepreneurship Program. Um, it's the, in the last year of studies, they choose 20 people um, from all different disciplines, so law, computer science, business, and they let the people in this group organize themselves to form companies. So kind of similar to the Entrepreneur First or EF model. And I was lucky enough to uh, group with great people and have a lot of support from the school to start a company that was doing text input solutions for PDAs. Um, at the time, it was Palm Pilot. Uh, the year was 2003. There were no app stores. So if you wanted to get software into handhelds, you needed to do OEM agreements. Um, it was a great learning experience. We managed to raise money from the chief scientist office in Israel. Uh, so it's a grant, government grant. And um, what also became apparent is that it's going to be extremely slow uh, because when we talked to companies like 3M, which was producing the Palm Pilot, uh, they told us, this is great. You know, next year we can evaluate if it can be in all of our devices in like two years time. And I realized that I don't have the time to, to wait to see it play out. And um, I got a job offer in New York to join another startup um, called Gerson Lerman Group or GLG that was doing um, essentially an expert network. So I decided to take the chance and uh, move to New York. And I guess that was, uh, for me, one of the uh, transformative periods because um, I went on my own, uh, not knowing anyone. And uh, I started as an intern in the QA department, uh, but I saw it as a huge opportunity to learn. And um, I think that started everything else. Mm. And, you know, 
what I want to see if you can share with us is maybe I know you moved on to California afterwards. What the key things that you got from the entrepreneurship program you did in school that were perhaps not the way that they played out in real life and the difference between the academic view of entrepreneurship and what maybe founders out there that are thinking about starting something are experiencing when they're going through a, a, a sort of a scholar process versus the, the actual real existence of it. And then how that transitioned into your senior product manager role at Ask.com. Sure. So the, I guess the, the most exciting thing about um, actually doing it versus the academic process is touching the real world. So when it doesn't stay uh, pen and paper, when it goes uh, beyond that and you, you put your product in front of people. So for us, that meant um, doing the market research and talking to companies. We've also teamed up with an actual scientist that was developing the technology in Jerusalem um, and kept having meetings about the technology and the product and informing him on how we need to change the product in order to fit with what the market wants. Um, so this was early days. There was no lean startup and you know a lot of the knowledge that's like uh, commonplace today didn't exist back then or, or wasn't easily available. Um, but one of the most interesting experiences was um, talking to an investor and it was Yossi Vardi. Um, some people may be familiar we with Yossi Vardi. This was 2003 and Yossi completely trashed us. Um, basically, he said it's an interesting idea. He liked the enthusiasm, but um, he was saying that it's more of a feature rather than a company. And we couldn't understand, like, what do you mean it's a feature? It's, this is a company, like we can make money selling this. Um, and it was all a great learning experience. Uh, like in any other startup environment, it's all about the people. Um, so there was interesting dynamic between us, the co-founders, the scientists, um, external stakeholders, the school. Um, but ultimately, what made it real was getting it outside to in front of customers and in front of investors. Mm. When you went through that process of customer discovery with a product like that, and do you remember what those conversations were like when speaking to OEMs or and any of those sort of large players? What what lessons do you did you learn about? more of a B2B type sale process versus a B2C. And, and you're, you know, you can feel free to include anecdotes from later. Yeah, sure. So when we first put it in front of um, companies, we had a huge fear that they're going to copy it and steal our product. And they wanted to get a demo and we would like think about how can we encrypt it and auto-destruct and yeah. you know prevent them from looking into it. But one of the things that, for example, uh, massively changed as a result of these tests was that our initial keyboard was a circle uh, where you can drag the stylus. You, you needed to use a little pen to, to type. Um, you needed to drag the stylus around the circle and uh, there would be pattern recognition that uh, with 99% accuracy uh, would decipher the word that you were trying to write. However, what we realized that is while it was in an innovative design um, and people liked the way that it looked, people are, were too used to QWERTY, to the traditional keyword layout. And you can't change, you can't mess with that. So. Mm. We changed the product and instead of having it be a circle, we made it into half a circle with the layout of keys being exactly the way that you're used to. Mm -hmm. So I guess listening to the feedback and not uh, so much being in love with your idea to the point that you can change it mm -hmm. is very important. When it came to sales, what we wanted is basically the market to validate uh, that our product was good and our technology was good. Um, but I guess what we didn't realize back then is that we were too early. Mm. 
There were no app stores. So this is not about convincing consumers. This is about convincing uh, manufacturers to embed your product uh, within their platform. And, you know, that can be a lengthy process. We were kids. Um, it's better to, I would have sought advice um, if I was doing it again. So talk to someone that has done uh, enterprise agreements and can tell you, you know, here's a standard contract. Like, here's the people in the organization that you need to, to target. And for us, it was sort of like, let's find whoever we can. In this case, uh, for 3M, we were trying to get to Eric Benamou, uh, who was, at, I think, at the time, the chairman of 3M. It's, you know, it's inappropriate, really. It's a, a little bit way too high for a uh, partnership agreement for technology. I, maybe I, I, I take that anecdote as an opportunity to ask you a question about something that I've always admired about you, but maybe it's something you, you recommend to other founders and startups, is how do, you, how do you hustle into the right relationships? How do you work your way into... You know, when is you you said the word? It was maybe inappropriate. Like, when do you know it is inappropriate? And and as a founder who who's got a lot of energy to to sort of approach the right people when you know who they are, uh, where do you draw the line? There's a great book by Adam Grant called Give and Take, and he says that the most successful people are givers, and the least successful people are givers. Um, so the question is, how do you end up on the top twenty uh, percent and not the bottom? For me, it's always been about sort of like what can I give before I get um, and helping people uh, wherever I can. So if the opportunity presents itself to help someone, try to help them. And then the universe has a way to get it back to you with karma. Uh, when it comes to meeting the right people, I wish I could say that I'm extremely strategic, you know, like I planned everything in advance. But the reality is I did it and I don't like I try to do my thing, focus on the things that I'm passionate about, help people where I can. But then also when I need um, help from the network, I'm not afraid to get it out there and say like, hey, like, do you know someone that can help me with this problem? Or who would you ask if you needed to, to do something like this? Um, at the end of the day, I think it's a lot about integrity and, you know, sort of like people can see through the fact that, you know, you have uh, clear objectives and not, you're not trying to like scam them or anything like that. Mm. So tell us about your transition into... Uh Ask.com and then maybe why you left that into into Europe to go into AOL. Yeah, so this was, um, I was at GLG uh, working in New York and wearing a suit and tie every day. Um, at this point, I moved from being an intern in the QA department to being a product manager at GLG. Um, but I felt like when you're a creative person and you're wearing a suit and tie, um, your ideas get blocked around the neckline. So... <laughs> I applied for a job at Google in New York back then, and uh, Google was notorious for taking their time to get back to you. You needed to speak with like a bunch of people, um, and between rounds, they would take their time, etc. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, told me, listen, instead of waiting nervously for Google to get back to you, why don't you submit your CV somewhere else? And that wasn't part of my culture. Like, you know, I, why would you apply somewhere that you're not interested to work in? And she's like, well, you'll have another conversation going on. So um, she found like that ask.com were looking for people in California and we just submitted my CV online. What happened was that uh, people from Ask uh, organized a meeting the following week uh, in New York and they liked me and they said like, why don't you come to California next weekend? And I went to California and suddenly it was really exciting to be on the other side of the U.S. And uh, the weather was kind of nice, which is rare for San Francisco. 
Um, and the interviews went really well. So spoke to three people, ended up speaking with the CEO, and they put an offer on the table and they said, look, you'll be a senior product manager within a year. This is your salary, ta ta ta. It felt like this is a really good opportunity, but I had this Google conversation going on and um, I wanted to know what's happening with that. So I called the recruiter at Google and I said like, hey, um, I have this other offer. I need to know what's going on. The recruiter said, congratulations, you passed all the interviews. So now we'll have a committee in three weeks' time where Larry and Sergey review each application and we'll let you know if you get an offer. And by the way, um, you'll start as a sort of like junior product manager uh, in the first year. That's how everyone starts in product management. So I said, well, that's really nice, but I need to know by Monday, you know, so like tomorrow. Um, and I said, sorry, we can't expedite the process. So I decided to take my chances and accept the job in California. Um, at that point, um, my girlfriend uh, was essentially all of her life was in New York and she had been accepted to school in London at the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. So while we were on vacation, we sort of like shook hands on it and we said like she will move with me to California and defer school. And when it's her time to begin school in London, I will move with her to London. So that's that's how it ended up happening. That's how you ended up going to London. And when you were... In London, that's when you decided to do your MBA. Well, before I, I, I knew that I was coming to London, I said, like, it would be great if I could do school in the meanwhile. Um, and ideally, I can do school while I'm working. Mm -hmm. So I decided to apply. And um, I, I have done my GMAT, uh, didn't get a great score, but I took my chances and I applied for the executive MBA program at London Business School. And... I don't know how, but luckily I got accepted and I managed to convince my manager at the time at Ask, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could move to London to do this MBA program and I still work part time. So I'll, all would, I would need to do is to take off the uh, every second Friday uh, to attend schools and I'm happy to compensate for that time or get a reduction in my salary or whatever they think is appropriate. And he was very supportive. Uh, funny enough, he ended up working at Google later as well. But uh, Ask gave me the opportunity to um, to move to London and do school. What happened then was that um, I was working on one of the biggest projects in the company. The company realized that people go to Ask to um, ask questions four times more than any other search engine, um, maybe because of the legacy of Ask Jeeves. And two weeks ahead of launch of this um, Q&A product that I was leading, um, something like two weeks before the CEO uh, was replaced. A new CEO came in uh, who came from a marketing background. He used to be the uh, head of marketing for Match.com. And he said, basically, all of these questions and answers, all of this stuff, um, you know, we're going to get rid of all of that. And what we're going to do is we're going to sponsor NASCAR. Uh, I know it sounds crazy. This was 2008. All the car companies were in trouble. Uh, NASCAR lost a lot of the sponsors and he was a marketing guy and he said NASCAR has 50 million fans in the US they don't have a preferred search engine so we're going to put stickers on cars and we're going to have presence in their events and that's how we're going to get a portion of these 50 million users did it work? it didn't work um, and for me it was extremely demotivating so when the offer came from AOL uh, like hey would you like to come and join um our product team and lead the product team as principal product manager. I was in the middle of my MBA, but I felt like, you know what? 
I'm going to do it because it's a chance to manage product managers and uh, this what's going on at Ask, I don't, I really don't like. Um, so that's how I made the switch to AOL. And did you at the same time start VC Cafe? I started VC Cafe in 2005. Um, that's the same year that TechCrunch started. So I had moved from Israel to New York and I wanted to create a source of news about Israel uh, that is not about the conflict. I knew that there was, obviously, I, I had started the startup and I was talking to other entrepreneurs and I knew that there's so much going on, but it doesn't get enough coverage in English. So I started blogging about startups and venture capital. At one point, I was covering every venture funding round in Israel. Uh, I was cold calling CEOs and getting interviews. And it was a passion project, really. Mm. So, you, I mean, you, you've kept that up for a long time because, I mean... I remember it going strong even through mid... I haven't checked it recently, but what's the state of VC Cafe these days? So VC Cafe still exists. Um, unfortunately, recently it's been hacked. Um, I had a DDoS attack, uh, which is kind of flattering that someone would go through the trouble to bring down my site. I think some people may not like that it's about uh, Israel and good news about Israel. Um, but it, I shifted from um, writing about news to focusing on big topics that I care about, like machine intelligence or best practices for founders or mm. Brexit. Um, but uh, there was one one story I think it's worth sharing that uh, made me go through this change. Uh, while I was at LBS, I had access to this um, database called Capital IQ. It's like a pitch book or matter mark, something that you pay a lot of money for. But MBA students used to get it for free. Um, and I... I got a scoop on this company in Israel, uh, which I won't mention by name, but um, I realized that this company raised funding. No one broke the news about their funding and they were going through a rename or rebrand. So um, I went to the website. There was a sort of like page that said that the website is under construction, but um, I managed to get to the cached version of the website. So if you search for, you know, there's a command on Google cache and the URL and you can see all the pages, the pages that were cached. So I managed to get behind sort of like the under construction page and see all of the new products and the announcement of the funding, etc. I wrote a blog post, took screenshots, and before I published, I sent an email to admin at webmaster at the company name, the new company name. And I said, um, Hey guys, I just found out about this. Uh, wanted to share the post um, before I published to ask if you have any comments. The CEO wrote back within less than a minute. It was instant. And he said, hey, great detective work. Um, yeah, I would really appreciate if you can wait 48 hours because uh, we're still not ready and we, you know, we, we only have one chance to launch. We want to make sure we do it right. And I said, of course, absolutely, like, just let me know. And if I'd love to get a comment from you before I publish. 24 hours later, it's on TechCrunch. So I felt like only three letters came to my mind at the time. And having thought about it, I sent to the CEO those three letters. Uh, and having thought about it, I realized, you know, if I'm hurting these companies by writing about them because... But for the virtue of the fact that if I broke the story, TechCrunch wouldn't write about them. Uh, it's probably better for them to get covered by TechCrunch, bigger brand, you know, more distribution. So what am I doing here? Uh, this is one thing. And the other thing is that if you cover news and you take a two-week holiday, you're obsolete. You can't stop covering news. You always have to keep up with, uh, with what's the latest for completion. 
So I decided to stop writing about news and focus more on helping entrepreneurs deal with issues or do roundups of companies where I highlight innovation where it mm-hmm. happens. Well, I mean, you started being part of the story as well by creating a lot of new initiatives. And maybe we can talk about those initiatives. I mean, you joined Google, so finally the, the, the dream that you had had while you were in New York to join finally came through. And, and I don't know if, if that interview was as long and lengthy and Larry had to opine on it. But, you know, maybe you can walk us through some of the things that you did in strategic partnerships um, at Google and, you know, the origin of campus, which we're sitting in as we record this. Yeah, it's, and it's great to be here. Um, I have to say, I'm so glad to see campus flourish and they, I know that they just announced a new campus. Uh, so that gives me great joy. Uh, when I was doing my MBA, I was working at um, AOL and sh- uh, shifted in the middle, as I mentioned. And... I knew that that's not my, you know, my dream job. That sort of like came to me and it felt like a good opportunity and I wanted to change what I was doing at the time. Um, so when the time when I was approaching graduation from LBS, I had two opportunities on the table. One opportunity uh, was to join a VC fund, uh, which was a huge deal. And, you know, I, I was extremely excited that they, they would think that I would be good enough to join. At the time, it was an associate. And I remember the, you calling me about this. Yeah, yeah. I remember pacing at the seat camp office, and you were like on the fence, should I do this, should I do that? Yes, yes, yes. And we had, we even had breakfast at Google to discuss. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. So uh, um, this, VC, this VC job was, was a big deal. And then I had this um, offer to join Google to do strategic partnerships. So at this point, I was thinking, you know what? I was already a product manager, senior product manager, principal product manager. Um, there's not much way that you can advance in product management. Um, and Google was offering me to do strategic partnerships. And after the MBA, um, it was very appealing to do business contracts, negotiation, to apply all of this business knowledge uh, on strategic partnerships. But with a product mindset, mm. it seemed very appealing. Uh, on the other side, I felt like, wow, this VC job, it's a, it's a really big deal. But people that I really appreciated uh, were leaving this VC fund, which is a very big brand name, um, sort of like living running in screams. Mm. So I felt like, you know what, it's very flattering that they would think that I'm good enough to take this VC job, but I won't be a worse VC down the line if I work for a few years at Google. Mm. And I want to have this business experience as well, because having the product experience, I felt like it wasn't enough, like I wanted to get more rounded uh, before I like invest in a company, etc. So um, I took the job at Google, and initially um, I was doing strategic partnerships in commerce to help launch different commerce initiatives around EMEA. So I launched uh, Google Shopping in Spain, really like onboarding uh, the largest uh, e-commerce merchants and, and retailers to Google Shopping platform. Then Google Wallet in the UK, um, same day delivery. I was running sort of like the reviews partnerships for EMEA. So I partnered with Trustpilot and uh, FIFO and a lot of the early players back then. So it was it was a great um, learning experience. And I felt like I was really getting the, the groove on sort of like reaching out to people in a pipeline and, you know, getting down to the KPIs and understanding what works, what doesn't work. And also hearing no 
a lot, which is uh, it's a great thing to do whenever you get an opportunity to do sales. That's what makes your skin a little bit thicker to hear no hundred times, but you know that you need to get a hundred yeses, so you're going to do it a thousand times until you get to those hundred yeses. Um, so I was doing that, but really my passion was startups and entrepreneurship. So literally every day I would come home and search in the Google intranet, which is called uh, MoMA. I would search for startups, entrepreneurship, EMEA. Is there anything going on? Is there anything I can get involved with? And one day um, I saw an internal site that uh, said that Eric Schmidt gave a speech that Google will be doing an innovation center in London. Um, I was so intrigued. Like, you know, I basically like was reading it to every word and I tried to find Eric's speech and what exactly did they mean by it. And I saw that on the internet, uh, the person that was that created this internal site was Obi Felton, um, which at the time she was the director of consumer marketing in EMEA. Now she's uh, she's still at Google. She's the head of moonshots at Google X, an amazing person. And I wrote Obi and said like, hey, I, you know, I just found out that we're doing this. How can I help? And she responded right away and she said, well, in a few months, we'll be looking for a head for it. So I said, wow, amazing, please count on me. Um, but I didn't then just wait a few months. I was at Google and I had this thing uh, that was happening that you know no one offered me the job yet and I knew that it's gonna be extremely competitive. So I went and I organized about 30 meetings. Um, you were one of them. I also met uh, back then with John Bradford. Um, I met with um, Philip, I met with, with a bunch of people in the startup ecosystem in London. It's worth mentioning that um, I was taking personal time off to help startups at this time. Um, I was a mentor at Seedcamp from the moment I moved to, to London. Um, I think this is even before you, you joined Seedcamp, mm -hmm. you were a Dottie Hansen. Mm -hmm. um, so this was an introduction from Neil Reimer to Saul Klein uh, when I moved to London and uh, I was fascinated with sort of like it's people from all of these countries and there's great companies and all of the investors come. So through that uh, network of people that I met, I, I set up these meetings and on these meetings, I would ask people, so Google is doing this innovation center. What do you think are the challenges and opportunities? And do you think I would be a good person for it? And I heard, you know, good feedback and bad feedback. Some people said like, you know, yeah, this could be amazing. You could do this, this, and that. And some people said, like, I would stay away from that. Like, that's, you know, probably it's too junior. Why don't you focus on sort of like the next step in strategic partnerships or something like that? Um, and all of that feedback formed um, my 100-day plan. So someone had recommended a book um, that I can highly recommend. It's called uh, The New Leader's First 100-Day Plan. And according to this book, your job starts way before someone offers you the job. Mm. So I took all of this feedback. I wrote the 100-day plan. And the funny thing is that um, later when the time came for the interviews, um, basically, I didn't leave them much chance. Like They said, so what are you going to do as the head of campus? And I would be like, okay, let me show you. Here's my plan, down to program names and initiatives. Um, and some of the stuff that was in that original plan, or a lot of what we ended up doing at campus was in the original plan, down to... Google Office Hours, Campus EDU, and even Tech Bikers. Wow, I didn't know this this backstory to it, and that's actually very um, interesting uh, for for 
people who are looking to join a startup to consider in, in a new role that might be on the website or not. Uh, but also very interesting for any kind of leader, any any sort of founder who's thinking about what they want to do when they launch. So because you were launching campus and a lot of these initiatives did come true um, and finding the building and finding all the right partners, um, why would you also take the time to build something like Tech Bikers? I mean, it would seem like the, the sort of the old startup adage of like, be focused would have, would have said, hey, don't do that. Why did you do that? And then what is it? So tech bikers and campus are extremely complementary. Um, it started from the notion of I needed to do something to help others. Um, I had taken a trip during the MBA to India. And on this trip, I got exposed to a lot of poverty. And uh, it just happened that my flight was canceled to London and we had an extra week to spend in India, my wife and I. Um, I already had finished my book and we went into a bookstore uh, near Connaught Square in Delhi. And we said like, you know, let's let's just, I read only startup books and happiness books and she only reads about politics and economics. She's a PhD, she's a lecturer. Uh, we're sort of like monochromatic in that sense <laughs> of like reading. And we said like, let's just do something different and, and buy a book that's more fitting to the place we're at. Um, so we went to the Save the World uh, shelf and we both cheated because I bought a book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World, mm. thinking like there's Microsoft in it, there must be some tech. Mm. So, you know, I'll, I'll still get my kick from it. And she got uh, The End of Poverty. And it was by Jeffrey Sachs, who's a famous economist. And there was a um, preface by Bono. So like we were both like sort of like kind of cheating. And the book Leaving Microsoft to Change the World was the story of room to read um, which is the charity that Tech Bikers supports. And it's the story of this guy, John Wood, which left Microsoft and basically became the modern Carnegie Mellon. I'll spare you the whole story, but I highly recommend the book or, or uh, an abstract of the book. He ended up building more libraries and schools um, in the developing world than Carnegie Mellon has in the US. And uh, he has a hugely fulfilling life knowing that he helped more than 10 million kids, etc. And I felt that planted the seed in my head way before... Um, really way before Google, uh, that I want to do something about it. But it sat in the back of my head. And then when I was starting campus, I thought, I need a way to build real community, which means you have all of these startups and they're together in this building, but they only care about themselves. They only care about their little startup and how they can make it grow. But if you want to build real community, I thought I need something that's that would elevate them that you know they can all come together also with investors and also with people from outside of campus with corporates um, and have everyone work together so they really get to know each other but we also have something to show for and at the time i had no experience in organizing anything like this um, i put a form on twitter uh, a google form saying like crazy idea i still have it it's still called crazy idea anyone wants to cycle from paris to london with me and about 55 people signed up within like a few days. So I'm like, shit, uh, you know, maybe I'm onto something. I have to do something about it. But I still didn't know how to organize it. Um, the pressure of these people waiting to hear from me was sort of like a catalyst for, um, you know, kicking the bum to like, I need to find out what's the next step here. Um, I managed to buy the domain techbikers.com. And again, this is one of those stories where like karma plays a role. Suddenly after telling a bunch of people that I'm looking to organize this thing, 
um, including Ingrid from TechCrunch. Uh, when she was covering campus, this is the first day of campus, we opened doors. I was convincing her to join this crazy bike ride uh, from Paris to London. She, it's in the post from TechCrunch about the launch of campus. Um, so suddenly an email lands in my inbox from someone I don't know saying like, hey, someone else I don't know told me that you're looking for someone to organize a bike ride. Well, I have a company that does the bike rides, that does the logistics for bike rides. And I'm like, where did this guy come from? This is like manna from heaven. Mm-hmm. And together we worked on the logistics. I managed to get sponsors to uh, cover some of the cost of the rides. The riders themselves mm-hmm. uh, covered this, the other half of the costs. Um, and then all of the money that we raised went to charity to a point where... But on, on that sort of point, one of the things that you're really good at is getting people to corral around a purpose. And I think you know you walked us through a little bit of the genesis of the idea that you put up a form and then you send it out to people. And But I guess I'm curious more about the learnings if you had to like inspire somebody to start something new, not like tech backers specifically, but anything where they wanted to achieve the same thing, maybe it's a part-time project, but getting other people around you around that single purpose isn't just about a form, it's about many other things. Maybe you can walk us through that. Yeah, so it can't be your thing that you're trying to get them around. It's our thing or it's their thing. So this was never about me, it was about us. And at the time, I felt like I needed help um, to put this together. I approached Jerry, who was an entrepreneur at Tech Hub. Um, he had a startup called Cycler at the time that was a community for cyclists. And I'm like, okay, this is cycling, cycler, cyclist, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and I also approached uh, Benjamin Southworth, who was the deputy head of Tech City uh, and part of Three Beards. And I said, hey, guys, let's do this together. Like, can we spread the word? You know, like, what does it take? How can we find 50 crazy people um, to take this ride? And by the way, we need help. So merchandise, jerseys, like, do you know how we like go around this? I think it's about making people care and giving them ownership and credit. And, you know, they share the responsibility, but they also share the upside. Um, on the run up for this, I had this experience from campus that was very helpful. So my manager at the time at Google um, was Nelson. He was the head of product and engineering in EMEA. Nelson Matos, great guy. And um, he was the most senior guy at Google on this side of the pond. Um, Campus was a first for Google. They didn't really know where it fits or how to do it. And this guy was engineering and product and I was reporting to him. So I said, listen, I need headcount. And Nelson said, "Um, how many people do you need? And I said, I need 10 people to run campus properly. And he basically laughed out hard. Like he was literally laughing. And I said, like, why are you laughing? And he's like, I can't give you 10 people. I may be able to give you one. And I said, you know what? Keep your one, but let me do it my way then. Um, and I went and I wrote uh, 10 job descriptions for what I needed. And I put it on an internal portal at Google. I got 50 people to apply ended up interviewing 25 and I hired 10 people for this 20% projects. Google has the concept of 20% time. Um, the people that I chose for these projects had relevant experience for what I needed them to do. So if I needed to run a survey, I took someone from the research team at Google. Yeah. Let's name check a few. <laughs> so I know, I know Kama was one of them. Um, 
Kama was involved in the setting up of, camp- of campus, like even before uh, campus existed. So she's like, you know, one of the founding mothers yeah. of, of campus. Um, Sarah um, Drinkwater was one of the 20% projects on yeah, the first batch. She's full time now. She's full time now. And part of the fact that she's full time now, when I was uh, looking for my successor, um, I prioritize people who voted with their feet. If you're really passionate about something, you're going to find the time to do it. And the fact that she did a 20% project and then re-signed up for the 20% project three times in a row, uh, basically reporting to me 20% of the time, taking time extra on her job, you know, and like working extra hard on her core job to, to do this, told me something about her passion. Um, but yeah, like uh, people that were, were in this group, um, that you would recognize um so oh, it's so hard to um uh, <laughs> well we'll come back to it we'll come back we'll come back we'll, we'll come, come back, back. To it. but you know the, the interesting thing is that it it generated google for entrepreneurs and then google launched google ventures and, it, and you know it's amazing how all these things kind of snowball and i think what's really interesting is that you know we could go hours just talking about the nuances of each one of these initiatives and Google for Entrepreneurs and actually we should probably have Sarah come and, and have a chat uh, about kind of what Google for Entrepreneurs is doing but at the end of the day you went through the entire process of Google you know you, you had wanted to work in venture you ended up working at Google Ventures you had gone through the process of being a product manager to a community builder to a, a founder in many ways and you decided to leave it all and maybe you can walk us through that tough decision that must have been to leave something that you had desired for so long had accomplished so much to then transition to what you're doing now maybe just walk us through what what you're doing now you know the saying if you love someone set them free (laughs) so that works for jobs dude. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it works for jobs either but um google was an incredible experience um it it gave me the freedom um which is very lucky because, you know, in most cases, when you work for a big company, you really are just, you know, part of the machine and uh, you have very clear responsibilities and it's very hard to break out from it. But um, the way that I used to refer to promotions at Google was a little bit like rugby, if you know the game. You can't pass the ball forward. You can only pass the ball sideways and hope for, you know, the ability to run forward, to to storm uh, or dash. And I guess I had that lucky break of um, coming in, doing something completely different from what I've done before. I was doing partnerships for the first time. My background was product. Um, but then this campus opportunity presented itself and it combined everything I had learned up to this point, right? It combined partnerships, product. I basically product managed the campus website, the systems. Like I, I was working with a contractor to design. I'm asking basically, just create for me a gym registration system where people come with their card and you can see their face in the door. You know, like everything that, that happened at campus was a combination of my experience thus far. Um, and Google Ventures was the peak of it. Uh, this is like finally, you know, like I can do venture. Um, and I felt like I, I have enough experience to, um, to help founders. You know, like I felt like I was rounded um, a little bit in my experience. At the same time, um, there were, you know, different dynamics uh, and there was a big change. Like every couple of years, I was doing something new, completely new and learning a job completely from scratch. Um, And I guess the difference was that with venture, 
this was no, you know, there was not much room for mistake. Um, you can't learn on the job, even though I was learning on the job. And I really enjoyed the people I was working with. I really enjoyed the challenge of constant learning. Um, I enjoyed the challenge of the deal and chasing the deal. But what I felt is, you know, my impact here is going to be limited. Um, I can be a better VC when I have more gray hair and I've done, you know, a lot of stuff that I can sort of like show for. Um, and while it's an amazing opportunity, I'm ready for the next challenge. There was also some personal um, considerations going on where I was essentially thinking about moving to the US very seriously. My wife is American, it was a junction in the road. And ultimately what I decided is um, when I was a VC and I met with VCs that had been entrepreneurs, uh, you know, without naming any names, but it was a little bit of a feeling of like a chip on the shoulder. Yeah, but you have, I mean, you have been. So you're right in a sense, but um, it's different. Um, I can tell you it's different now. I'm in a startup now. I'm not the founder of the startup, um, but... Well, tell us first of all, what, 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 what is the startup and tell us what, what you do in it. Just so. Yeah, so I joined um, Antidote nine months ago. Um, what we do is essentially we disrupt clinical trials through technology, but uh, that's on a very high level. Basically, every drug that comes to the market needs to go through a series of clinical trials. It takes years and lots of money to bring a drug to the market. 90% of the trials run late because they can't find enough people on time. Mm. Partly, it's because of lack of awareness of people um, and doctors to what clinical trials are out there. The other part of it is technological, that every trial has very specific eligibility criteria, uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria, and it's free text. So if you went and searched for clinical trials in a disease that you've been diagnosed with, you would have to read every result to see if you're eligible. What Antidote does is we turn this free text into machine readable. So we structure the data of all trials and we have an algorithm that then knows how to transform this structured data into plain English questions and prioritize what is the next question I need to ask you to triage you to a limited number of trials that you are a match for. Mm -hmm. So today we're focusing on putting this technology in the hands of patients. Therefore, increasing the number of people searching and participating in clinical trials and bringing drugs faster to the market. We work with about 150 partners in digital health. Like These are patient advocacy groups, mm -hmm. health portals, communities. Um, we've also been selected by the White House as one of the Cancer Moonshot uh, technology partners because we uh, believe we can accelerate the, you know, curing cancer basically by bringing these treatments faster to the market. It's extremely interesting to be working on a mission that can actually save people's lives. So you, when you work in a startup that has a strong mission, you're able to attract people that tend to be overqualified for what they're applying for, but their motivation comes from um, essentially intrinsic, from passion for, for the cause. Mm -hmm. For me, the motivation came from um, having lost my father to cancer when he was 44 years old. So he was diagnosed with cancer when he was 43. He went through chemo and surgery, sort of like standard treatments, and he passed away a year later. Mm -hmm. No one mentioned to us clinical trials in this process. And having come from a family of doctors, um, I always had this itch for health. 
And it feels like, you know what, I'm going to give uh, myself and some time to dedicate to solve this problem or at least give a real punt uh, to the effort. Yeah. And I haven't looked back. It's been an amazing experience so far. And to, to the point you were making earlier, do you feel that it is the right kind of experience for you? And, and what, what does the future have in store for you? Because, I mean, obviously you want this company to be successful and, you know, you'll hopefully make money so that you can start in supporting tech bikers maybe in a larger s scope or maybe you'll have other initiatives but what is the what is the future for you i mean you've been very visionary in terms of bringing initiatives to the ecosystem thanks for the question i think um you know th there's a saying uh, ask me to predict anything but the future um i don't have a five-year plan um, or something like that that i can tell you like i'm going to do this for a couple of years and, th and then i'm going to do that i'm committed to making antidote a success uh, I feel like it's an extremely interesting period. We're raising money right now, so I'm experiencing that process from the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, there's a lot to improve uh, in the VC community. Um, I'm also learning a lot myself about what it entails and you know how hard it is really for, uh, for startups to go through this. So hopefully uh, developing more empathy. I think that ultimately I can see myself going back to VC um, later down the road um, for now I'm, I'm just enjoying this too much um, i think tech bikers is and will continue to be a passion project and something that um, i want to to continue to have legacy um, our impact so far has been amazing we've built six schools 14 libraries 300 scholarships for girls you know you're part of it yeah. as well and uh, it's extremely satisfying having um, visited one of the schools last year in nepal I can tell you that there's nothing or almost nothing I can do professionally that would compare to that impact, at least for me, for what this means uh, to these kids. But um, I think it's either going to be for me uh, funding something of my own and taking everything I have in my toolbox to make it work or um, going back to, to venture, mm -hmm. but perhaps with a different um, constellation, you know, perhaps um, smaller fund, early stage, focus on the areas where uh, I think I can give most to entrepreneurs and where I'm passionate about. Mm. Well, we always like to end with a few sort of fun questions and uh, maybe maybe one of them is if there's one moment in your life that you could undo, what would it be? Wow, that's a trick question. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason, so I really... It's the butterfly effect. So I don't know if I would undo one moment. Like, would I still meet my wife? Would I still have my, you know, my great kids? Yeah, the butterfly so effect. So I don't know. I think that uh, the experiences I've been through made me who I am. Um, I guess, so I served in the army in Israel. It's mandatory service. And um, I had very good grades in high school. Uh, part of this, like, immigrant uh, bug, you know? Mm. And um, I got invites to all of these intelligence units, computer science units. I, this is hardcore shit, yeah? Like, I had long hair. I was 17, and I was getting to do tests on artificial language, where they would teach you a language. You had half an hour to learn some verbs and how to conjugate them. And then you had to translate a passage and, like, complete sentences in this made-up language. And I passed all of these tests. Um, and I took a lot of time to sort of, like, go through these but then I got a letter asking me if I want to serve in a combat unit. And even though I had a lower medical profile, um, 
meaning that I couldn't do sort of like the top of the combat jobs. I couldn't be a pilot. I couldn't go to like, you know, commando or super infantry. I could only do sort of like the mid-level combat stuff like tanks or artillery. I said like, yes, I want to be a combat soldier. Um, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to the army. And um, I ended up taking that path. Now, we know the stories of the people that took the other path and went to the computer science units and intelligence units. They ended up funding uh, Checkpoint and Mobileye and Waze and, you know, all of the startups that you hear that come out of Israel, the alumni um, of this unit tend to be the founders. So, you know, who knows, uh, who knows? if it would have worked out differently. But Who knows? Well, I think you've done quite a bit for us uh, here in, in Europe uh, in, in building up the Thank community you. and ecosystem. So it's, thanks for all that and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Bye, guys.